Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, is a man who keeps a close eye on global events. His business depends on it. He recently described our world as at the most dangerous time we've seen in decades. Every day we witness alliances shifting at an almost dizzying pace. On one side, Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran are forming a block that challenges the Western narrative. Recent events like Putin's visit to China and Biden's visit to Israel underscore this evolving dynamic. In light of the war in Ukraine, Western alliances have solidified with NATO and the EU moving closer together. Meanwhile, Africa has become a focal point of China's ambitions. Taiwan remains a contested territory, and the race is on to win the hearts and minds of India and the global south. But the Middle East is a bomb whose fuse is lit. While diplomatic efforts are underway to prevent a wider conflict, countries like Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and the UAE are grappling with a geopolitical identity crisis, raising the stakes considerably. High-level shuttle diplomacy is more active than ever, prompting the question, who truly understands the full chessboard and can make sense of all the moves? We're going to talk about precisely that today with my guest, Dr. Kenneth Katzman. He sees that chessboard. He's a senior advisor with the Sufan Group and a leading Middle East expert. With a focus on Iran, the Persian Gulf states, Iraq, and Afghanistan, he has served as a senior advisor with the Congressional Research Service, an arm of the U.S. Congress. He's appeared on numerous regional media outlets and was previously an analyst at the CIA. He holds a Ph.D. in political science from New York University. He's the author of the book, The Warriors of Islam, and it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Kenneth Katzman here to the Who, What, Why podcast. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it is a delight to have you here. First of all, is the world a more dangerous place since October 7th? Well, it's the same place. I mean, you know, obviously uh, the September 11 attacks in the United States were devastating to the United States. Uh, ISIS's caliphate of 2014 was a big threat terrorist threat. And now Hamas, uh, this attack on October 7th, uh, basically has put Hamas in the same category as Al-Qaeda and ISIS as a terrorist group that simply needs to be defeated. Um, at least that's the Israeli point of view. The U.S. backs that point of view. And uh, yeah. Should we be thinking of Hamas the same way we thought of Al-Qaeda? Well, I think they've taken, you know, this attack on October 7th certainly puts them at that level. Uh, a severe attack on civilians, indiscriminate attack on civilians, disregard for human life, civilian human life. Uh, I think that they've, they've put themselves in the same category. And unfortunately for them, you know, they're going to probably suffer the same fate, which is unrelenting military pressure until they're completely defeated. Um, there's, there's not, I don't, predict there's going to be any negotiations with them except maybe to get hostages out. Um, I think the Israelis have made a decision that, that they cannot live with this group in control of the Gaza Strip. They need to be completely uh, defeated. We've heard several times when Israeli officials have been asked about what happens the day after Hamas is defeated, who controls Gaza. What happens then? What is your sense of that? That, that's an issue I'm trying to talk to a lot of people about. Uh, and I think that was the point of President Biden was going to meet. It got canceled, but he was going to meet with 
King Abdullah in Jordan and uh, the Palestinian Authority President Abbas in Amman, I guess it was. And uh, unfortunately, that was canceled. But I think the purpose of that meeting was to discuss who takes over in control of Gaza after Hamas is defeated. And uh, uh, my most my base case, my most likely scenario is that uh, the Palestinian Authority that's based in you know the West Bank uh, would would uh, basically reinstate their authority over the Gaza Strip. Remember, they did have authority over it till 2007 when Hamas, after winning a legislative election there, uh, militarily uh, kicked them out of. Uh, kicked the PLO, the Palestinian Authority, out of Gaza and took it over. So they were in control before 2007. And I think the most easily envisionable solution is to have the Palestinian Authority take back control of the uh, Gaza Strip. Do they have the credibility to do that among the Palestinian people? Well, that's the issue. You know, I'm not, not saying it would be easy for the Palestinian Authority or Abbas. You know, they, they were they were didn't do well in the 2006 elections because they're viewed as corrupt. They're viewed as, you know, too, too quick to compromise with Israel. And, uh, you know, now with passions inflamed, uh, that's perhaps even more so in the Gaza Strip. Uh, the attitude, the propensity to want to compromise with Israel is perhaps even less than it was before the uh, this attack, this war. So it, it, it'd be rough, but, uh, you know, at least they are a Palestinian entity. So, I mean, I, to my mind, that's uh, a more easily envisionable solution than having some Arab force or Western force as a peacekeeping force uh, or an Israeli occupation, reoccupation of Gaza. Uh, at least the Palestinian Authority are Palestinians, and so they they might be able to build credibility and have legitimate leadership there in Gaza. On the other side of the coin, what happens with the Israeli government? There's this unity government, this war government now. What happens after that? That's that's very hard to see. I mean, there, there's there's been speculation that Netanyahu's uh, you know, long-running uh, prime ministership is probably going to end. Uh, you know, the, the intelligence failure was hard to swallow for the Israelis. Uh, Netanyahu always has advertised himself as the, what he says is the one man who can keep the Israeli people safe. Obviously, he failed on October 7th. So he, he's got a tremendous credibility problem, adding to the problems over his uh, court reform judicial reform, which has divided the Israeli public. So he's he's got a lot of problems. You know, he's got a window here while the war is going on that, uh, you know, people are in Israel are rallying around him. But if if indeed Israel succeeds and Hamas is defeated, then afterwards, I suspect you might get a change in uh, political leadership in Israel. What is your sense of the timing of all of this? How long do you think a war in Gaza lasts? And to what extent does the length of that war really determine in large measure how this plays out after? Well, I, you know, I think, I think we're talking months. You know, Israel still hasn't uh, gone in, you know, on the ground. Uh, they, they're trying to soften up targets, key targets, weaken Hamas before they go in there. They're trying to find out where these tunnels begin and end and... Uh, that's going to be a big problem. So they're, they're going to go slow. You know, I, I don't think this is going to be finished in weeks. I mean, I think we're talking several months here. 
Talk a little bit about an area that is, is certainly an area of expertise for you, and that is Iran and what they do next in all of this. We've certainly heard a lot of bellicose rhetoric. Is that meaningful, and should we be concerned in terms of this escalating into a wider war? Well, I would be concerned, but, uh, you know, Iran does have constraints of its own. Uh, you know, they, obviously the United States has warned Iran not to get involved. Uh, I think the Iranian leadership should take that warning seriously. Uh, usually their playbook is to use, you know, surrogates and armed factions that they support to do their work for them. They, they're probably going to do that again. Hezbollah is already doing some of that by shelling northern Israel, trying to keep the Israeli military tied down in the north, take pressure off Hamas in the south and in Gaza. So Iran is already pursuing some of that strategy. But an all-out attack on Israel by Iran or Iran-backed forces, I think, is problematic, given the U.S. stated willingness to get involved, uh, you know, if if that happens, if Iran does really escalate uh, and get directly involved. uh, You know, Iran uh, makes a lot of threats, but at the end of the day, their ability to back up those threats is, uh, when you compare it to the U.S. military, for example, is is pretty limited. What are the dangers then when we hear this rhetoric and, and, and talk about a wider war and, and, and the potential escalation of this situation into a wider war in the region. Where are the flashpoints? What specifically should we be looking for? Well, anything's a potential flashpoint. Um, you know, we, we didn't expect October 7th, and then that happened. Uh, you know, I think most people, and I'm, and I'm with most experts on this, we're looking at Hezbollah pretty closely. Uh, that's the most likely avenue to escalate. Uh, Hezbollah has a lot of rockets and missiles, many, many more than Hamas and more precise and, uh, you know, more fighters, just more wherewithal than Hamas does. And uh, so, uh, you know, Hezbollah coming in in a, in a major way would, would create problems for the IDF, definitely. Was there a fundamental mistake in Israeli-U.S. policy in thinking that all of these other methods of outreach, the Abraham Accords, the effort to to normalize relations with Saudi Arabia, that all of these efforts to go around the Palestinians and ignore the Palestinian issue while making peace in the region, was that a mistaken policy? I think think it was uh, the expectations for that strategy were too high. Uh, I think there's there's a grain of, uh, of truth to that that I agree with, that uh, there was a thinking that, uh, you know, the, the Arab states in Israel would normalize without any Israeli concessions to the Palestinians, that the Palestinians would simply be left behind in the region and uh, left to fend on their own. And so, yes, there was there were some assumptions made in the Abraham Accords and other policies that uh, were, uh, have shown to be... Uh, perhaps uh, not not uh, completely thought through. Yes, yes, sir. Are there nations right now that can be honest brokers in all of this to the extent that things do escalate? Is it Egypt, who we've given huge amounts of aid to? Is it Qatar? I mean, are there, age, are there countries that can be honest brokers here? Well, it's very difficult. You know, it depends on the degree to which Hezbollah and Iran get involved because, you know, obviously Qatar has ties to Iran, but not a lot of leverage. Egypt does not have ties, has not rebuilt ties to Tehran. So that's not 
going to work. Russia can't be a mediator, obviously, given its invasion of Ukraine and how isolated Russia is on the world stage. China conceivably could, uh, you know, talk to the Iranians. Uh, They did broker the Saudi-Iran accord in March. So there's uh, but but obviously China is not trusted by the United States. So uh, it's difficult. Uh, You know, the Qatar, Oman, Sultanate of Oman is, is a potential choice. They have very strong ties to Iran and obviously the Arab, they are an Arab state. So very, they're part of the Gulf Cooperation Council. So they have strong ties on the Arab side as well. So that that's a possibility, I suppose. Is there any kind of connection as you see it, either directly or even indirectly, between what happens next in Ukraine with, with the players there and the way things play out in the Middle East? Well, I don't think there's a direct connection, but it's indirect in terms of the United States trying to help both Ukraine and Israel at the same time, uh, at a time when the U.S. Congress, is, uh, particularly the House of Representatives, is in disarray. Uh, so that that's a problem. Uh, there's already been questions about the amount of U.S. resources spent on Ukraine. So uh, there's more support probably for spending on Israel, which needs less than Ukraine does. But uh, it's a, you know presumably a smaller war involving fewer forces. But uh, yeah, there, there, there's a strain on U.S. bandwidth, U.S. resources. And, and that's what I see as the connection between those two theaters. To what extent do you think that the internal divisions within Israel caused them to take their eye off the ball in terms of security? I, I don't think it was uh, internal divisions as much as I think, you know, there, there was unrest in the West Bank, uh, particularly the Janine camp where, you know, Hamas and other radical factions had been gaining influence uh, and and Israel had to had to devote some forces to that there's been Hezbollah even before October 7 Hezbollah was uh, uh, sort of moving in on some disputed territory in the north and, uh, and I think moved in on some checkpoints uh, so Israel was looking at Hezbollah obviously Israel's been bombing inside Syria every few days for a very long time, uh, bombing Iranian infrastructure, Iran-backed militia factions. And so uh, I think Israel had its eye, its forces and its eyes on a lot of different parts of its border and perhaps maybe de-emphasized Gaza. Uh, so I do, I do see that uh, more so than internal divisions within Israel. Talk a little bit about what you see as, as the next steps once Israel goes into Gaza in, in terms of the reaction on the Arab street and, and really the pushback that we're going to see against this. I think it really is going to be a function of how slowly Israel goes and how much attention they pay to uh, minimizing civilian casualties. The more care Israel takes to minimize civilian casualties, the, the lower the reaction the anger on the Arab street will be. I think Israel made a good decision today uh, overnight on allowing humanitarian aid in without concessions. Uh, I think that's going to help the the image. Um, It's really really going to depend, you know, again, as we've seen with this hospital thing, even though it looks like, you know, that was not Israel that did that. Any any episode like that where sort of a humanitarian facility is destroyed or harm the civilian you know mass casualty events uh, 
that's that's going to create more anger against Israel. So I think Israel probably needs to go slow and, uh, you know, be very, very transparent about what it's doing to minimize uh, civilian losses. There was arguably a direct line between the war in 73 and what ultimately became the Camp David Accords. Positive things came out of that war. Do you see anything potentially positive that can arise from this current situation? Well, I really do. Uh, you know, first of all, if if Israel defeats Hamas, which I expect them to, that's that's going to remove a, one leg of, of Iran's quote-unquote axis of resistance. So right away, once Hamas is defeated, Iran is weakened. Iran's whole strategy to pressuring Israel with Hamas, with Hezbollah, is going to be weakened. And Hezbollah will be more sort of on its own against Israel. So that 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 could be a benefit. The other potential benefit is uh, the global community, and, and including U.S. policy, is going to return, I think, to a focus on, uh, you know, trying to broker some sort of a long-term solution between the Israelis and the Palestinians, realizing, you know, that the. Uh, you know, that's that there's not been really meaningful negotiations in some time and uh, it's it's stagnated. There's been no real new proposals made. Uh, President Trump made some attempts with his economic based strategy, investment based strategy with Jared Kushner, and that didn't really go anywhere. But there, there has not been a focus on the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. And I think yeah, we're, we're going to get a renewed focus on that after this. Is there a concern that Israel can overstep with respect to what it does vis-a-vis Iran? Certainly there have been lots of covert efforts that Israel has taken to slow down Iran's nuclear program. Can Israel go too far in what it does in Iran? Well, going too far would be probably an all-out strike on Iran's nuclear or other facilities, uh, you know, a strategic airstrike uh, you know that that obviously would would get a reaction from Tehran, but uh, you know I, th- I think we have to be you know the media to some extent you know I'm an expert on you know you mentioned my book The Warriors of Islam the real title is The Warriors of Islam Iran's Revolutionary Guard so my academic work is focused on the Revolutionary Guard and of Iran and uh, you know I, I think the media sometimes overhypes Iran's capabilities. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, they have some drone capabilities. They've got missiles, uh, but Iran Iran is not in the same category as the United States of America. Let's let's you know let's be real here. Uh, they're not even in the same category as Israel. So uh, you know I think we have to be careful not to overstate. Iran does not have a multiplicity of options here. I mean, they have some options as a spoiler. They, you know, they have Hezbollah. They have missiles that, you know, they can do damage here and there. But, uh, you know, I think we have to be careful not to overinflate Iran's capabilities. Why do you think that there's a tendency on the part of the media to do that? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think it makes for a good story, you know to try to paint it as some sort of even matchup between the, the United States of America and Iran. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. You tell me. I mean, it's, it's, it's baffled me a little bit. I mean, you know, Iran does have capabilities, uh, you know, uh, every, they, they attacked some commercial shipping some, several weeks ago and the U.S. Navy showed up and they ran away. I mean, you know, Iran, Iran is not an, a rival to the United States of America. Uh, let's, you know, we, we got to get that on the table here. And where are the Saudis in all of this? 
the Saudis, you know, they they are they they want to focus really on MBS Mohammed bin Salman's economic diversification, the Vision 2030. The problem is they keep getting forced off that by these conflicts. Uh, they, they've been forced off it somewhat by Yemen, which was somewhat of their own making. They went into Yemen, you know, and then got bogged down. They didn't win. They thought they were going to win quickly and did not. So they got bogged down in Yemen. That threw them off. <clears throat> then they had, uh, you know, this pact with Iran, which they thought was going to solve Yemen and do all sorts of other things for them. And it didn't. They thought it would maybe cause Iran to be a little bit more constructive, and it hasn't. Now they're hit with this crisis in the Hamas-Israel crisis. So the, the Saudis, you know, they, they want to get back to, you know, they, they want to normalize with Israel. Now that's derailed by this crisis. So, you know, they're, they're trying to de-escalate. They want to de-escalate to be able to focus on their economic diversification, but uh they keep getting drawn into these various conflicts and can't get out of it. And finally, getting back to the Palestinians, is there a chance from all of this for there to emerge a, a new generation or at least some new voices in Palestinian leadership? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's going to happen. If if my, what I've said before to you that, uh, you know, some sort of Palestinian authority governance is going to be reestablished over Gaza. I think you are going to see new leaders get involved in that. Uh, you're, you're going to see new Palestinian commanders potentially sent into Gaza. And let's see, let's see how successful they are. You're going to have pressure on Abbas to reform, uh, you know, the Palestinian Authority and eliminate corruption. I mean, that's really why the Palestinian Authority lost out to Hamas, you know, 2006 and 2007 is because they were perceived as corrupt, whereas Hamas was not. And that's really what did it. Uh, and then so the Palestinian Authority needs to clean up its act. Uh, and and I, think, I think you're going to see pressure within the Palestinian Authority to do that with new leaders, with leaders that are committed to eliminating corruption. And so I think there could be positives, new voices, new Palestinian voices emerging from this, the ashes of this conflict here. Dr. Kenneth Katzman, I thank you so very much for spending time with us today here on the Who, What, Why podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate having you. Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.